For seven years, Harriet Jacobs could not go inside her grandmother's home. She lived in the tiny attic crawlspace on top of a storeroom off the side of the house. Years later, she would write her autobiography, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Her story should have solidified her place in history, but for decades, the writer's true identity was unknown. The place where she hid is long gone. A bank with a drive through has now taken its place, but her story hasn't been forgotten. Welcome to Someone Lived Here, a podcast about the places cool people called home. I'm your host, Kendra Gaylord. This is a story about mothers and daughters. Harriet Jacobs lost her mother at a young age, but her grandmother, Molly, provided her with love and later protection. Before Harriet Jacobs was born, much of her life was already determined. When her grandmother, Molly, was a child, she had been freed by her father and owner at his death during the Revolutionary War. They left on a boat under British protection to a European settlement in Florida. But the family was captured by Americans, and Molly was sold and separated from her family. She was bought by John Hornablow and found herself in Edenton, North Carolina. It would take Molly almost 50 years, but she would buy her freedom and a house, the very house we're remembering today. John Hornablow and his wife Elizabeth would give each of their daughters, one of Molly's daughters, as a wedding present. Delilah, Harriet's mother, was given to Margaret. Margaret was sick and often unable to walk without pain. She would not marry, but Delilah would. Delilah married Elijah Jacobs, a talented carpenter and enslaved man whose goal was to free himself and his family. Harriet's brother, John, would later write, to be a man and not to be a man. A father without authority, a husband and no protector, is the darkest of fates. My father taught me to hate slavery, but forgot to teach me how to conceal my hatred. Elijah was enslaved at a plantation a couple of towns over. In Edenton, Delilah and their two children lived in one of the outbuildings behind the Hornablow Tavern. When Elijah was in town for building projects, the family would live together under one roof. Harriet was six years old when she lost her mother. Delilah died at 29 and was promised by her owner, Margaret, that she would care for Harriet. Harriet and her brother would live with their grandmother, Molly. Margaret taught Harriet how to read and write. She would later write in her book, As a child, I love my mistress. And looking back on the happy days I spent with her, I try to think with less bitterness of this act of injustice. The biggest act of injustice came after Margaret died. Harriet was 12. Many in her family assumed she would be freed in Margaret's will. Margaret left all of her enslaved people to her mother, but a last-minute exception was made for Harriet. Dr. Norcom was Margaret's doctor. He was also her brother-in-law. On the day she died, the will was adjusted, leaving Harriet to Dr. Norcom's three-year-old daughter. It was not formally signed by Margaret, although Harriet likely never knew that. The change was witnessed by another man and Dr. Norcom himself. At 12, Harriet moved out of her grandmother's home and to the Norcom residence a few blocks away. Almost 30 years later, once free, Harriet would write about her experience in Norcom's house. She would change their last name to Flint and her name to Linda. 
but she wrote about sexual abuse in such an honest way, which you don't expect from a book written in the early 1800s. From the chapter, The Trials of Girlhood, she writes, She will become prematurely knowing in evil things. Soon she will learn to tremble when she hears her master's footfall. She will be compelled to realize that she is no longer a child. If God has bestowed beauty upon her, it will prove her greatest curse. She would later write of her own experience. The light heart which nature had given me became heavy with sad forebodings. The other slaves in my master's house noticed the change. Many of them pitied me, but none dared ask the cause. They had no need to inquire. They knew too well the guilty practices under that roof, and they were aware that to speak of them was an offense that never went unpunished. When Elizabeth, the matriarch of the Hornablow family, died, it was known that she intended to free Molly. But Dr. Norcom had seized Elizabeth's enslaved people, suggesting they were payment for his mother-in-law's outstanding medical bills. Dr. Norcom had planned to sell Molly privately, suggesting that she would be spared the embarrassment. Molly refused, and on January 1st, 1828, she gave her money to Elizabeth's sister, who purchased Molly and Molly's son, Mark. In a few months, Molly was emancipated. She bought the home where she would live with her son and ran a bakery. Harriet continued at Norcom's, stalked during the day by Mr. Norcom, and watched at night by a jealous Mrs. Norcom. She had some protection living a few blocks from her well-respected and connected grandmother, but Norcom was unrelenting. He was building a house for Harriet, four miles away from town, where she would be his mistress. She would later write, I vowed before my maker that I would never enter it. I was determined that the master whom I'd so hated and loathed, who had blighted the prospects of my youth and made my life a desert, should not, after my long struggle with him, succeed at last in trampling his victim under his feet. I would do anything, everything, for the sake of defeating him. Harriet would write about the next period of her life with a bit of shame. She saw Norcom's weaknesses. He was a doctor, but he was not part of the town's most elite. But her grandmother's neighbor, Samuel Treadwell Sawyer, was. He was 30, unmarried, and a relative of the governor. They began seeing each other in private. When Norcom ordered her to the isolated home, she announced her pregnancy with Sawyer's child. When Harriet writes about her pregnancy, she almost asks the reader for forgiveness, which is the saddest part. She was not making choices or decisions. She was a 15-year-old girl who saw the walls closing in around her. Her grandmother Molly was shocked. She was unaware of the sexual assault from Norcom, the relationship with Sawyer, and the baby. Mrs. Norcom would no longer allow Harriet in her home, assuming her husband was the father. Harriet moved back into her grandmother's home. She thought that Norcom would be so angry he would sell her, and Sawyer would purchase her. But instead, Norcom vowed that he would never sell her. And as the law saw it, Harriet's children were Norcom's property. In that home on the corner of King and Broad Street, she would have her son Joseph, and four years later her daughter Louisa. Norcom began to use Harriet's children to punish her. When he came to Molly's home, he was violent to both Harriet and her children, once hitting her five-year-old son Joseph unconscious. 
Harriet was later sent to Norcom's son's plantation. Although she went alone, they later would send for her children to join her. She saw that her children were only being hurt to hurt her. If she was no longer there, they would once again be young children, and to Norcom they would no longer be useful. After midnight, she walked off the plantation. This was just the beginning of the decades-long journey to secure her freedom. First she hid with a friend, and later in the home of a wealthy, slave-owning neighbor. She spent months in closets and crawl spaces. Norcom issued searches and rewards. Months later, he would borrow money for a trip to New York, with the hopes of bringing her back himself. He would return empty-handed. Molly and Sawyer saw his need for cash, and through an unnamed buyer, he purchased his son, his daughter, and Harriet's brother, John. The three had recently been sent to jail by Norcom, thinking Harriet would return if she heard where her six- and two-year-old were. After their purchase, John was put in chains and the children placed on a cart. Once a mile outside of Edenton, John's chains were removed and he was instructed to return to his grandmother's house with the children and report to his new owner, Samuel Sawyer. Harriet's hiding place was once again unsafe. She stayed two nights on a boat in a swamp, surrounded by snakes and mosquitoes. When she arrived back to her grandmother's home, she was sick. She was brought to the small shed built off of the house. Her uncle had built a trapdoor in the ceiling. Up above would become her home for six years and 11 months. It was nine feet long, seven feet wide, and with a slope of the roof only three feet high. She wrote of this place, I suffered for air even more than for light, but I was not comfortless. I heard the voices of my children. We'll tell the rest of Harriet's story after a quick break. Hi, it's Kendra, the host of this show, who's been talking to you this whole time. I have a couple of announcements that I wanted to make. First of all, thank you so much for listening to Someone Lived Here. Making new episodes during this very strange time is really helpful. Something I always try to remind myself is that history is constantly happening, so it helps to reflect on the past while we live in the present. Next up, we recently made a change to the audio and music, so it works better for people with hearing loss. This change was made on today's episode and the last Woody Guthrie episode. If you or someone you know can hear the episodes better or worse, please let us know at someonelivedhere at gmail.com. Every episode also has a transcript on our website. And then final note, last month we launched a Patreon. Patreon is a monthly membership platform that helps people like me fund their projects or podcasts. Every level gets you a sticker in the mail with a personal note from me. And if you signed up for the Cupola, you'd get a season recap episode and be listed as a supporter on our website. To join, go to someonelivedhere.com support. Thanks again for listening, and now let's get back to Harriet. No one told Joseph and Louisa that their mother was living in a tiny shed above them, but she would watch them play on the street from a small hole she made, which was her only source of light. Her uncle had built the trap door within a cupboard of shelves. For meals, Molly would leave food in the cupboard. Then Harriet would move the ceiling above to get them. Molly and Mark left the storeroom unlocked and the windows uncurtained 
to avoid drawing any suspicion. The physical toll of this prison showed itself quickly. She experienced sensory deprivation with hallucinations and periods of amnesia and confusion. She worried that she might lose her ability to walk. She stretched and crawled the length of her space. She began to measure time by the growth of her children from her view from above. In her years in hiding, the world continued. Sawyer was elected to the House of Representatives. He had still not formally emancipated their children. Louisa soon traveled north with her father and his new wife and daughter. But on her last night in Edenton, Harriet came down the cupboard shelves and reintroduced herself to her daughter. Harriet wrote of that night with her daughter. All night she nestled in my arms, and I had no inclination to slumber. The moments were too precious to lose any of them. Louisa was seven. It had been five years since they had seen each other. Louisa was later sent from Washington to Sawyer's Cousins in Brooklyn, New York. Slavery was illegal there, but in a letter the cousin wrote to Molly, she referred to Louisa as my little waiting maid. Afraid her daughter was being exploited, Harriet began to plan how she would leave Edenton for good. Harriet boarded a boat in June of 1842. She was nearly 30 years old, having spent all of her adult life either hiding or enslaved. In New York, she was one step closer to true freedom. Harriet began to look for work in New York. She applied for a job as a baby nurse. She had no references, but Mary Willis suggested they trial each other for a week. Mary was English and had recently married Nathaniel Parker Willis. I had never heard of him, but in the 1840s, he was an extremely popular writer and one of the most highly paid. Harriet would continue to work for Mary for many years, but Harriet would move on to Boston for its safety. There, she would live under the same roof as her two children and her brother as a neighbor. Louisa had never been sent to school, as promised by Sawyer's cousin. Harriet began to tutor the 10-year-old, teaching her how to read and write. Harriet's brother, John, had become an activist. He would introduce Harriet to Amy and Isaac Post. It was to Amy that she would first tell her story in full. Amy wrote of her conversations with Harriet. Her story was too sacred to be drawn from her by inquisitive questions, and I left her free to tell as much or as little as she chose. In the coming years, Amy would suggest Harriet write down her story, but Harriet had many reasons to resist, a big reason being the past was painful to remember. Harriet's first employer, Mary Willis, died in childbirth, and in the following years, her husband, Nathaniel Willis, would remarry. It was through Cornelia that Harriet would finally get her freedom. It was during another close call when the Norcom family traveled to New York. Cornelia wrote to Harriet of the plan to buy her freedom. Harriet refused. She would write, to pay money to those who had so grievously oppressed me seemed like taking from my suffering the glory of triumph. But the plan had already occurred and Harriet was sold in the state of New York, making her finally free. In her book, she would remember boarding a train to New York the day after, looking directly at every passenger, 
no longer afraid of seeing a familiar face. Soon after, Harriet's grandmother died. After years protecting her secret, Molly and her son had entered a new period of their lives. Mark had married and his wife moved in. Molly finally took communion at her church as she was no longer holding any secrets. Molly was one of the reasons Harriet hadn't told her story. And now that she was gone, she began to write. Louisa was visiting her at Idlewild, the upstate New York home of the Willises. And although the home is no longer in its previous form, based on photos and sketches, it was a truly beautiful house. It was a carpenter gothic, which is my favorite type, located in the same area as Storm King. After finishing her book, she found herself in need of a publisher. Harriet Beecher Stowe would only put parts in an additional nonfiction text for Uncle Tom's Cabin. She found no success getting the book published in Europe. Another publisher wanted a preface from her current employer, Nathaniel Willis. A Boston publisher was interested if she could get a preface from Lydia Mariah Child. She's now most known for her poem, Over the River and Through the Wood, to Grandfather's House We Go. But much of her writing was anti-slavery. Mariah agreed not only to write the preface, but to edit. She was conscientious with her notes and edits. She said she didn't alter more than 50 words in the whole book. She did suggest Harriet remove an addendum and instead end on the death of her grandmother. Harriet's book was published in 1861, making Harriet 48. Before we hear the rest of Harriet's story, I want to tell you about how this story was almost lost and how one historian brought Harriet back. Harriet had written her book under the pseudonym Linda Brent. The cover read, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself. She wrote in her own preface regarding changing the names. I had no motive for secrecy on my own account, but I deemed it kind and considerate towards others to pursue this course. At the time, it was well known that Harriet was the writer. Articles were written by Mrs. Jacobs, the author of Linda. But over the decades, the connection was forgotten. Her obituary in a Boston paper mentions her employment with the Willises and refers to her book as, quote, a touching little story of her life, relating therein one of the most painful histories. The connection became even more faint, and by the 1960s, historians assumed that Lydia Mariah Child was not only the book's editor, but also its writer. In the 1970s, Jean Fagan Yellen was writing her dissertation. After rereading incidents, she began to question that theory. The writing styles of the two women were vastly different. Her research brought her to Edenton, North Carolina. In 1987, she published the paper proving to the academic community that incidents in the life of a slave girl was an authentic narrative. And in 2004, she would publish Harriet Jacobs' A Life, finally returning that story to its rightful owner. A lot of stories seem to end when the memoir does. But Harriet's, of course, keeps going. She went south and began to help refugees, preparing for what she hoped would be their impending emancipation. She communicated back and forth with the North, telling her friends of the conditions and rallying their financial support. By 1864, 
Louisa and Harriet opened the Jacob School in Alexandria, Virginia. There, Louisa would teach 75 formerly enslaved people to read and write. What had been delayed for her, she now taught to others. Later, Harriet would travel back to Edenton. Slavery was abolished, but so much was still the same. Her grandmother's home had been sold, but she stayed at the house next door. There, she wrote in a letter to a friend, I'm sitting under the old roof, 12 feet from the spot where I suffered all the cursing weight of slavery. Those I loved of their hard struggle in life, their unfaltering love and devotion toward myself and children. I love to sit here and think of them. They have made the few sunny spots in that dark sacred to me. Harriet Jacobs died at age 84. She was buried at Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Louisa would be buried at her side 20 years later. The mother and daughter, who lost so many precious years, would spend the rest together. Thank you for listening to this episode of Someone Lived Here. We'll be releasing new episodes every other Monday this season. Tell us what you think of the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can see what we're up to by following on Instagram at Someone Lived Here Pod or our Facebook page, Someone Lived Here. Thank you to Tim Cahill for our music. If you have any questions about the show, go to our website, someonelivedhere.com.